Eagles Entertainment. During this time, as folks are choosing to stay at home, NovaCare Rehabilitation is offering tele-rehab right from the comfort of your home. For more information, go to NovaCare.com. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. Welcome back to Return Game, House of Pain Game. We hope you tuned into our first couple of episodes, but if you haven't, no worries. Here's what you missed. In Philadelphia, Coach Buddy Ryan was fired and Rich Kotite replaced him. This left fans and players with mixed emotions, but the Birds had a job to do. The Eagles' offense had lost quarterback Randall Cunningham in the season opener and was struggling. The defense was off to an historic start, which created some tension in the locker room. The defense felt the season's success fell on their shoulder pads. The Oilers, but their run-and-shoot offense, were having no such problem. They were taking the NFL by storm. A win in the Dome, a.k.a. the House of Pain, would bring Love You Blue one step closer to the playoffs. But what will happen to our birds? Will they spill some oil in Houston, or will they fly home with broken beaks? Over to you, Rob. Thank you, Merrill. And yes, welcome back to Episode 3 of Return Game, House of Pain Game, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Rob Ellis. This is a look back at a game that saw one of, if not, the best offenses in the NFL run head-on into what may have been the Eagles' best-ever defensive unit on a national stage. Great matchup tonight, Dan. Their number one defense against an offense the likes of which the Eagles have not seen. Nor has anyone else in the National Football League, unless it's your turn to play the Houston Oilers. And it is the run and shoot, the only really true run and shoot in the National Football League. In the weeks leading into this December game, the Philadelphia Eagles had gutted out a four-game winning streak to bring their record over 500. Sure, the Birds had beaten the Oilers before, all four times, in fact. But going into this Monday matchup, the Oilers were six-and-a-half-point favorites. The over-under was 42. Adding to that, it was a game in the Astrodome with a sellout crowd. Sounds like the Oilers are going to be tough to beat. Could the Eagles claw their way to victory? Monday Night Football had become a staple for the fans since its first telecast in 1970. And in 1991, Monday Night Football games maintained its reputation as the hottest game of the week. The combination of the national stage and the long build-up to game time made it must-see TV. Especially back then, the Monday night games were very special. My first five years, we knew we were playing at 12 o'clock Central Standard Time on Sunday because we weren't going to get any primetime games. Obviously, there are a lot more primetime games now. But especially back then, Monday night football, that was all there was. Playing center for the Oilers that season was Bruce Matthews. Those home games at the Dome were memorable, to say the least. You had the best announcers. You knew the fans were going to be all jazzed up and geeked up for the game. And, uh, you knew there was going to be that extra amount of energy. And they always played uh, the Hank Williams Jr. song, uh, All My Rowdy Friends Are Coming Over Monday Night. So the dome was rolling.
Eagles linebacker number 59, Seth Joyner, didn't feel the added pressure of playing for a huge Monday night audience. In fact, he thrived on it. His personal challenge, the weekend waiting game. Athletes are creatures of habit. You already know what you're going to do and what your Sunday, what your weekend is going to look like leading into a game on Sunday, whether it's an early or late game. With the Monday night game, it's different because you get an opportunity to sit back and watch games all day Sunday, realizing you're not going to play till late Monday night. So it's way out of your comfort zone because, you know, by the time you get to Monday morning, you're just you're itching to play and you still got to wait a good seven, eight hours before you even take the field. So that's the only different dynamic, you know, back then that there was to play in the Monday night game. One thing players did to occupy themselves ahead of game time were meetings with their position coaches. The Oilers' offensive coordinator, Kevin Gilbride, believed by game day his players were ready to go. Most of your work is already done. You've uh, had your your planning laid out. You've spent uh, you know 80 hours or so getting ready for what the tendencies are for the other team, who you thought you may have to assist up front, maybe maybe double team a certain defensive person and or offensively who you could maybe exploit that you thought you could take advantage of because your particular player at that position was superior to what you were going against. Remember, in 1991, Jack Pardee and Kevin Gilbride's run-and-shoot offense was still considered a novelty. The Monday Night Football broadcast crew, Frank Gifford, Dan Deerdorf, and Al Michaels had to explain how it worked. Jack Pardee in his second year as the head coach of the Oilers. And Jack Pardee's run-and-shoot offense, just a little refresher for us. Warren Moon really directs it from the line of scrimmage. He comes up, looks over the defense. He has signals that he works to his four wide outs. They don't have a tight end. They usually make that signal at the line of scrimmage when he reads the defense. He'll try to read it quickly so they can make their adjustment. He'll look left and right. You'll see him look over the defense, and then you'll see him make, bark the signal right there, and now they know what they're going to do. But when your defense is arguably the best in the league, it might be easy to think, okay, Eagles, you've just won four straight. You can just keep doing the same thing, and that's enough to win. Not the case. New plans of attack needed to be sketched out, and as Ray Didinger recalls, defensive coordinator Bud Carson had a twist up his sleeve for Coach Kevin Gilbride, the man who had been tasked with coming up with a way to stop gangrene and the Eagles. Basically, it's what people called nickel defense, which a lot of teams would use it on third down. A lot of teams would use it in obvious passing situations. But Bud Carson, who had taken over as the defensive coordinator, was a very smart guy. I mean, he, he was sort of the anti-buddy in the sense that he had no profile, didn't care about publicity, didn't say very much. But tactically, in terms of X's and O's, Bud was as good a defensive coach as there was. And what Bud saw when he looked at the tape of the Oilers was, you know, look, people play nickel defense and they say oh, they're in passing situations. You play the Houston Oilers, every play is a passing <laughs> situation because why should we even bother trying to play a straight-up base defense against these guys thinking if they're going to run the ball because we know they're not going to run the ball. So let's just assume they're going to want to throw it on every down, and let's play every down like it's third down. Still not sure how this all adds up. Fran Duffy, host of the podcast Eagle Eye in the Sky, has a football to English translation for us. All right, so nickel defense. Back then, that was not really all that common. In today's game, much more common in in football. But the premise is simple. If the other team has a lot of fast guys on the field, 
you need to have a lot of fast guys on the field as well. And it used to be that a team's base defense, the way that they lined up 90% of the time, we'll say, had seven players up front close to the line of scrimmage. So seven bigger guys, defensive linemen, linebackers. So that just left four defensive backs. And they were smaller guys that played in space. Well, as offenses like the run and shoot began to become more common, they put more than two receivers on the field at a time. So teams had to react So they would put five defensive backs on the field. So that's where the name nickel comes from, the number five for five DBs. So rather than trying to have a 250-pound linebacker running out in the open field with a 180-pound wide receiver, you take that linebacker, you put him on the bench, and you replace him with a defensive back who is a better matchup one-on-one to try and get that advantage back in your favor. And it's all a numbers game. In the week leading up to the House of Pain game, The Eagles and the Oilers had run their drills, watched their hours of tape on each other, and knew what was expected of them on the field after kickoff. But what about the unexpected? I got sick right around Saturday. We flew into Houston um, late Saturday night. We practiced early Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. We flew out. We got to Houston. Saturday night, you know, I started to feel not so well. I was just in the bed all day. All day Sunday, we had a walkthrough Sunday evening that I didn't attend. And then when Monday rolled around, you know, the trainers were with me, working with me all day. And by the time the game time rolled around, you know, I had 103 temperature, couldn't keep any food down. They were IVing him all day because he, uh, he hadn't been able to keep any food down for two days, didn't leave his hotel room, actually didn't get out of bed. For a while there, they were sort of saying, well, there's no way he's going to play, but Seth above all, was a great competitor who loved the challenge. And he loved the challenge of taking on this Houston offense that everybody said was unstoppable. You tell Seth Joyner that an offense is unstoppable. The one thing he's going to want to do is go out and prove that he can stop it. I can remember laying in the, in the training room at the stadium and the coach is coming in because, you know, you still had to deactivate inactive players. So the coach comes in and they were like, well, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to play. And I looked at him. I was like, do not deactivate me. I am playing this game tonight. I said, come hella high water. I will be on the field. Would coach Rich Kotite and Bud Carson listen to Seth Joyner and unleash him on the Oilers run and shoot offense? You go to the stadium about two and a half hours before and you got an hour and a half to get dressed, warm up, get stretched, get taped, maybe go out in the field and toss the ball around a little bit, just take a look, come back in. So there'd be like guys with their headphones on and uh, guys going through their routine. They kind of get in their own space. There's not a whole lot of rah-rah bashing your heads against the lockers or anything. You're in your own world, kind of. A pregame locker room does not look or feel like it does on TV. Jeff Kemp remembers his teammates mostly keeping to themselves with an occasional meeting with a position coach or a trainer. But they were focused on their own games. Kemp says Reggie White would recruit some of the players and lead them in prayer before hitting the field. There wasn't a whole lot of heavy pep talk. Richie gives his little, you know, New Jersey tough guy team talk. Hey, listen, you know, he's got a cigar. We're going to play tough. In episode two, we introduced you to the Astrodome and told you the origin story of its moniker, the House of Pain. Just in case you missed it, here's a recap. Former oiler and martial arts aficionado, Robert Lyles christened the Dome 
after a dojo where he practiced. Now you know. It's Monday night, so it was it was a party. When we would pull into the parking lot, you know, there's fans tailgating everywhere. It's very similar to what you might find at uh, at Lincoln Financial Field. It, it's a place where the fans get into it. They paint their faces. You know, they they really embraced that whole love you blue thing that was going on back in those days. Ted Party found himself in an interesting spot on game day, especially when the Oilers played at home. Not only was he the head coach's son, but he was also an Oiler fan. So, as you would expect, right, you would expect that to be a sellout game, nationally televised, all the hype, so all the local channels were were there covering it, plus the national guys. So, it was a special environment. It was a lot of fun going into that stadium that game. Monday nights, you know, people are cutting their workday short early if they're coming to the game or if they're at home. But typically, you know, I think they'd have a few adult beverages and be well oiled up for the game. And they were loud. Just that energy. It gets you going a little more than your normal regular season game. And uh, we were ready to go. We were confident. But if you're on the opposing team and you're still not sure you'll be physically able to play, how does that walk onto the gridiron feel? I can tell you it was electric. The stadium was just, it was raucous because one knew the importance of this game. The energy was just palpable. I mean, you come down at the tunnel, you had Houston, all his fans that were hanging over the, the tunnel and they were, you know, hurling insults at us. And, you know, you could barely even hear yourself think. That's how exciting and what, you know, how energy-driven that that game was. National Anthem's, I think, always fun. And on Monday night, especially cool, because you can just feel the electricity rising. And sometimes you even pinch yourself and think, man, this is sweet. I am playing on Monday Night Football in the NFL. That's great. A lot of times, I remember early in my career, I wouldn't let myself think, hey, how cool this is. I wanted to act like I was supposed to be there. My dad had played, so... I kind of thought I'd play, but it was still a long shot. But the national anthem, you know, it's kind of a cool time thinking, hey, a great opportunity. I love this sport, love playing this game. Here we go. Roger Ruzek to put it in the air for Philadelphia. And before a full house at the dome, here we go. A low bouncing kick. Fielded at the one-yard line by Alan Pinkett. And it's a good run back to start things for the Oilers as he is thrust out of bounds at the 29-yard line. When the gangrene defense took the field for the first time that night, who was positioned at outside linebacker for the Eagles? Seth Joyner. I had kind of resolved in my mind how I was going to play this thing. Uh, you know, my energy stores were down because, you know, I hadn't been able to keep any food down. I wasn't really feeling well at all. I knew my temperature was up, but, you know, I was still sweating like crazy and just trying to figure out where the fluids were coming from because it's not like I was drinking a whole lot of fluids or eating anything. My plan was, okay, you go out here, we're going to play every play all out, and wherever you are on the field, you just take a knee. Just take a knee and catch your breath, regroup, and you don't even have to be in the huddle for the call. Byron or where somebody else would give you the call. But we're just going to play one play at a time and focus on it like that. And that's all you can do. The man they're going to have to watch for is Seth Joyner. 
the linebacker the Eagles has been blitzing lately, and he has been wreaking havoc in people's backfields. The Oilers had the first possession, and on the second play... Three receivers to the left for Moon, who fumbles the snap. That's what happened last week against Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh recovered, and this week Philadelphia recovers. Same play. Moon fumbled the snap, and this time it is Byron Evans who takes over for the Eagles. And so Moon begins this week the way last week ended. That's right. Future Hall of Famer Warren Moon fumbled, and the Eagles linebacker Byron Evans recovered the ball at Houston's 33-yard line. Not the start the Oilers had been aiming for, but it's football and fortunes can change. After that early turnover, it didn't take long for the Eagles defense to take things a step farther and make good on the promise to bring the pain. We knew they were going to be throwing the ball all over the map. We knew that they were a finesse football team and the way that you beat finesse football teams is that you dominate them, you batter them, you beat them, and you take away their will. Well, we had two safeties that just loved to do that. So the first time that Ernest Gibbons ran a crossing route, I knocked the ball down. And I can remember Wes running by, and he kind of whispered at him, hey, you better be glad he knocked that ball down. So the next time they come back, they run the same play. Wes hits him with a forearm. Third and five. The blitz, it's picked up, and the pass is caught by Gibbons, who nearly has his head taken off, and a flag comes in after the play up at the 40. Apparently his, his face mask, you know, has got too much space in between. So when he goes to hit him, he kind of throws a forearm, and he hits him and breaks his nose, and blood is just running out of his helmet. And I thought that Wes had killed him. So they stop the game. They come to get him and take him off the field. And I'm like, well, he's done for the day. Well, then he comes back in the game. And he's got all these gauzes stuck up in his nose. And I'm like, dude, how are you going to breathe? You don't even, your nostrils are plugged up. So he broke his nose. They plugged up his nostrils with this gauze. And they put him back out there and he played. But he wasn't the same after that. I mean, he was like seeing ghosts and hearing boogeymen all over the field because instead of him concentrating and catching the ball the rest of the day, he was looking around to see where the defender was coming from. It changed the game. I mean, nobody on that offense wanted to catch anything, you know, inside the hash mark. Yeah, he got cheap shotted by one of the safeties. I can't even remember the kid's name, but uh, threw an elbow and got through the through the. Uh, face mask and hit him, broke his nose. It was obvious that immediately, and uh, he got taken out of the game and brought back to the locker room. So you knew it was very serious, but to the credit of the young man, he came back with a shield and <laughs> nose straightened out and, and continued to play the second half. I will never forget that hit as long as I live. I mean, today, probably seven flags fly. But it was just, it was, he just absolutely discombobulated him on that. I think guys like Wes Hopkins, they were intimidators. That hit on Ernest Gibbons, it made me gasp. I mean, I was way up at the Astrodome, and when he hit him, I went, oh. I mean, but it just took all the wind out of me. You could hear that collision in the last row of the stadium. The tone had been set. After that hit... 
the Oilers absolutely played scared. No question about it. In his 44 years covering the NFL for the Houston Chronicle, John McClain has witnessed bone-crushing hits. In the 90s, this seemingly no-holds-barred style of play was still allowed, and gangrene excelled at it. Hopkins was 6'1", 15. He's from Texas, and he went to SMU. He was a free safety, and he was a hard hitter. The things that Wes Hopkins could do in 1991, free safeties can't do today. Now, if he played today, he would adjust. But Hopkins, as they said, would knock your jock off. Ernest was about 180. He played inside in the slot. He took some of the hardest hits over the middle I've ever seen. You don't see many hits like that today because the defensive players, they have to think all the time about are they leaving their feet? When are they leaving their feet? Does the guy duck his head back then? They didn't have to worry about that. So when you saw a guy, the rules had changed where you couldn't hit him in the face with a forearm, a padded forearm, like it had been in the 60s and 70s, where you could chop him at the knees, do just about anything you wanted to him. The rules had changed, but it was still legitimate for you to get ahead of steam, go up and hit the receiver, and as long as you didn't hit him too soon and commit interference, anything was legal. In the first half, the Eagles couldn't get things going offensively, but neither could the Oilers. I just remember punting a lot. And <laughs> the reason I remember that, I used to center for the punts. So in one regard, you get tired from running a bunch of offensive plays, but covering a punt is that gets you just as gassed as playing. And I remember both offenses struggling that game and you know obviously I take it from the offensive perspective I remember us not necessarily doing that much we get a first down maybe one or two but we couldn't sustain any drives Houston I mean this is an offensive powerhouse or has been but tonight look at this fumble punt fumble punt punt fumble (laughs) the Eagles defense was living up to the pregame hype as they held perhaps the NFL's best offense that season to just a field goal in the first half. 42-yard attempt for Del Greco, and he just makes it, just inside the left upright. A veritable avalanche of points here yes. in the first half. <laughs> Long first half. And for a team that had been racking up lopsided wins, huge scores against the competition all season, 35 points on the Bengals, 42 on the Broncos, and a 47 spot on the Raiders to go into halftime with a 3-0 lead was not where they wanted to be. As for the Eagles? I think the Eagles were very confident because their defense was in full control of the game. And if you're the Oilers, you're worried because no team has put you back on your heels the way the Eagles have. And Warren Moon, who had played that whole season in this wonderful sort of comfort zone where he could pretty much do whatever he wanted to do, he knew he was dealing with a whole different animal this night. It ends with Houston on top. Oilers on top. Another look. It doesn't get any closer than this. 3 nothing Houston. And we'll be back with halftime activities after this message from the NFL. And a word from our ABC. Next time on Return Game, House of Pain Game presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. The second half. Will the Eagles come from behind and swoop to victory? Nobody had held that offense to three points and a half, probably in a successive two years. So we knew we had them where we wanted them. 
Um, it was just a matter of us trying to figure out, okay, can the offense, you know, generate any points? Can we create turnovers and put them on the plus side of the field so they don't have to sustain a bunch of first downs to get there? Or can we turn the ball over on the defensive side, you know, and score? There was never any consternation, never any doubt as to whether we were going to win this game. You have been listening to Return Game, House of Pain Game, presented by Novacare Rehabilitation. I'm Rob Ellis. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a production of Eagles Entertainment and is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla with sound design and mixing from Peter Kelly. And Eagles thank you to all of our guests for sharing their stories. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a five-star rating. It will help other people discover the podcast. If you have ideas for topics we should explore in future seasons of Return Game, please leave us a comment. Eagles Entertainment produces several other great podcasts that you may enjoy, and we'd love if you check us out at philadelphiaeagles.com slash podcasts. See you next time. During this time, as folks are choosing to stay at home, NovaCare Rehabilitation is offering tele-rehab right from the comfort of your home. For more information, go to NovaCare.com. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy.